0: From KCRW, I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. Whether it's Catholics not being allowed to eat meat on Fridays, halal and kosher restrictions for Muslims and Jews, or Pythagoras telling his followers to avoid fava beans, both because they caused gas and because he thought they contained the souls of dead people, rules have always existed around what foods humans should and shouldn't consume. And while religions and food may seem like unlikely partners, doctrine defining what followers can and can't eat has had a profound role in shaping American identity. Why do these rules exist, and to what extent do they have a practical intent, as in preserving food or trying to prevent illness versus a spiritual one? Christina Ward, author of Holy Food, How Cults, Communes, and Religious Movements Influence What We Eat, is here with the answers.
1: I think when you look back to the serious, the the origins and the prehistory, a lot of it is um, comes from both the safety aspect. It was easier to couch some of that in the holiness and the spirituality because the end result is if you followed some of those food safety things that are inherent in the kashrut and some of the very early uh, Jewish food rules, that you will end up with um, a pretty good hygiene and food safe environment. And then on top of that, in those pre-science days, people weren't sure where the food was coming from. You knew you could eat some plants. You knew you could eat some animals. And that's kind of a miracle if you don't know how those plants and animals came to be. And so that's also part of the origin of the kind of the spiritual beliefs is you thank God. You thank the creator of the world around you for the food you're eating. So it's kind of that twinned origin of how it got started.
0: Aside from food safety um, and health, there's always been this idea across many belief systems that the human appetite needs to be controlled. Can you give us some examples of where this crops up and and what controlling one's appetite is supposed to achieve?
1: You know, appetites are are interesting. And it goes back to, um, you know, we think about Thomas Aquinas and we think about like the seven deadly sins. Um, But Aquinas got it from Aristotle. Um, And this notion is that excess, any type of excess, It reflects badly on our morality. And so we really early started controlling what types and and how much food we ate. And then when you think about it in the realm of kind of early democracies, I'm thinking back to kind of ancient Greek culture and ancient Roman culture, is one of the kind of markers of great excessive wealth was just gluttonous feasting. And so when the Greeks start thinking about what democracy is, is that that type of excess is a harbinger of like royalty and of the elite, and you want to avoid being that. So, you know, so there were these kind of impulses to control the appetite uh, to be one of a better human and also as a reflection of, you know, the type of society we wanted to build.
0: Do you see any links between ancient beliefs about, um, these beliefs about controlling appetites and modern day wellness culture. I ask because so much talk about clean eating and wellness often seems to come with a certain amount of judgment that makes it feel like a
1: moral imperative, Yeah, that morality part, we still embrace that of, and, you know, even if we're not consciously aware of it, of oftentimes we see someone who's um, maybe carrying more weight than we think they should be in the grocery store. And we make silent judgments about what what's in their shopping cart. And so we haven't left this. And so a lot of the modern wellness culture is still rooted in the seven deadlies, in this idea that excessive consumption is a reflection of the core morality of that person. And then the core, the weakness that someone who's unable to control their appetite is somehow morally flawed. And even in the face of the science that that shows that there's so much more uh, actual genetics and the physical reasons why people carry extra weight, but it's hard to resist that. Actually, um, a few years ago, it became a really popular in, um, in a general and Protestant Uh, circles and churches, they were actually hosting a religiously based kind of weight loss clinics. And that were really unhealthy because it was about really excessive caloric restriction. Um, But it was also um, using biblical scripture to kind of inspire, to essentially say, God says, don't eat so much.
0: There were several waves of religious revival known as the Great Awakening that spread through the U.S., when did they occur, and what food fads did they inspire?
1: There's two Great Awakenings. The first Great Awakening, not so many food things, but the second Great Awakening, wow. Everybody decided that they were going to have rules about eating, and they were based on the earlier Leviticus, the Kashrut, those Jewish uh, laws that are in what Christians call the Old Testament Um and so, based off of that, that when people decided, especially with the um, movement of Protestantism, that idea that people could have a direct relationship with their God, that they didn't need a priestly Um, intermediary, people were interpreting the words of the Bible. And sometimes out of context, they would just pick a a line in the scripture and feel that it um, motivated them to make a food choice. So you see a lot of, uh, with the Seventh-day Adventists, one of the more sustaining and popular groups today, they embraced something out of the New Testament to say that you shouldn't eat meat at all no meat, and many are vegan. And that was born out of that, again, the Second Great Awakening. Um, and they were all really related. It was some one guy would have some ideas and was put a group together, and then someone would disagree and then start another group. And so during that period, say, from post-Civil War, Right up to about the turn of the ninth to the next century is you see an explosion of new religious groups, and all of them have just slight variations on the rules for eating
0: we 're such an interesting country. I always
1: call us a chaos machine
0: <laughs> oh yeah, that's such a great description. Um, <laughs> tell me about the overlap between religion and the organic and macrobiotic food movements. When do we see? that start. And, and where does it play out most prominently?
1: Oh, it's so so interesting how macrobiotics as an idea um, kind of co- wanes and waxes in popularity in the United States. It made its entrance kind of in the 1930s and it was uh, begun in Japan and in- really inspired by the German naturopath movement, as well as then the Buddhist ideas about seasonality, the ideas that can are often um trace back to india uh about hot foods cold foods for different seasons so georgia shawawa kind of combines all that together and develops this whole system of eating which is called then macrobiotics it's very popular in france cuz that is where georgia shawawa was and then it got brought to the united states by a few followers so um the The woman, the the um, the Kushi's, the she was a great cook and started doing cooking lessons in macrobiotic cooking in Boston, and that is really where it it took off, especially among the Harvard set. A lot of the universities in Boston were bringing um, religious scholars from the East, from Buddhist traditions and Hindu traditions over. So there was a a heightened awareness about uh, cuisines and foodways and religious beliefs, especially from the East. And that's how that got started. Um, The Kushis eventually moved from Boston to Los Angeles, which is always a hotbed of new religious ideas and new food movements. And they started um, their health food grocery store called Erewhon, nowhere spelled backwards, Erewhon. Um, People may like recognize that a bit today because it, it is not owned by the Cushies but is still a very popular health food grocery store. And that's how that got started. So interesting.
0: Religious cults are often called high control groups because they use psychological coercion to recruit, indoctrinate, and retain members. How do they use food to exert a coercive power
1: over people? One of the better ideas about how do you determine what is a cult, what is not a cult, is the BITE model developed by uh, Stephen Hassan. And it stands for behavior, information, thought, and emotion. And so under the behavior part of it, that's where you can get a lot of control doing uh, regarding food. And so you are regulating their food intake, when they eat, how they eat, who are they eating with, prescribing fasts, also using it as punishment so that that's very actually common in these very high control groups is the withholding of food as a as a form of punishment for violating the group's rules It can also be used as a bit of an attractant. Sometimes, and this is where you get to some of the, the, really, the harmful groups that still have a food culture. Yogi Bhajan, when he wanted uh, new acolytes when he was starting, he would make people take a garlic fast, essentially, and eat like raw garlic many times a day for three days in a row. As a way to filter people out is if they couldn't follow that, if they couldn't follow that very rigid rule, then he didn't want them because he'd know they're not going to follow any other rules if they're not going to do that. And he had a phrase for it and he wanted to separate the yogis from the bogies. So that that's often how the food is used in these high control groups.
0: So all of these various religious groups and strains of thought have percolated through our society for all of these years. What lasting influences have they had on the American diet? Are there things we're eating or maybe not eating today because of them?
1: Absolutely. I think of, first and foremost, going back to the Seventh-day Adventist and Little Debbie's. Um, Little Debbie's are pretty cheap. And I, many, many kids eat little Debbie's and we'll find them in their lunch boxes. Part of the reason they're relatively cheap is they're—it's not chocolate; it's carob. Uh, the SDA was kind of anti-chocolate; they viewed it as a stimulant, and so you see carob-covered things. And there's the religious aspect of it because carob is also known by um, a re- kind of a, a localized religious name called Saint John's bread, and so there's that spiritual link by eating Saint John's bread to the SDA. Yet. Every grocery store in a country, you're going to find variation upon variation of Little Debbie snack cakes. And that, I think, is one of the most lasting of the kind of religiously influenced foods that kind of went mainstream. There was a
0: period of time um, for our web copy on this show that the most popular link of good food by far was for funeral potatoes. Yeah, <laughs> From the from the LDS. Um, Yeah, you have a recipe for them in
1: the book. I do. Well, firstly, yeah, how can you resist, you know, a great combination of salty and fat, right? <laughs> so, if you look at all and there's always variations on a funeral potatoes, and what we're talking about when we talk about funeral potatoes, it's really it's a potato casserole with cheese and eggs, you know, that that's kind of in it. So, you're thinking it's a really rich and and a dish. And people do variations and put different things in it and everybody has a favorite version. And so oh, A lot of the LDS food culture, and especially like food, uh, the funeral potatoes, become out of that tradition we kind of talked about earlier of being an isolated community. And when you're so insulated, you're kind of trading the same recipes and you're eating the same foods. And so it became an LDS tradition to take this particular potato casserole to a family after someone had died. And so it's also part of the LDS tradition because it uses uh, shelf-stable foods. The LDS were really great about food preservation. They experienced, you know, threats of starvation in the, their migration from kind of the Mississippi River all the way to where they are, you know, the Great Enclave at the Great Salt Lake. And so food preservation is um, integral to. Uh, LDS food culture. And so you could can potatoes and cheese kept for a while. And if you had a cow, you could get some fresh milk. And so that was a dish that you could prepare almost any time. It wasn't reliant on anything that you needed to wait for to be in season. And that that's a critical thing when you look at a lot of the LDS foods is they're really based on preserved foods.
0: Christina, what a fabulous book
1: you wrote. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me and allowing me to talk about one of my favorite things, which is the intersection of food and religion.
0: That was food historian Christina Ward, author of Holy Food, How Cults, Communes, and Religious Movements Influenced What We Eat in American History. We'll have a link to her book on our site, kcrw.com slash goodfood. Coming up, you know what they say, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. And when life gives you recycled wastewater, make a Heffenweizen? How One Arizona Brewery is Embracing Toilet to Tap. Next.
2: Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled, This first-of-its-kind
3: vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car. Already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now
1: at kcrw.com slash cars.
0: Welcome back to Good Food. Toilet-to-tap may be an accurate description of how wastewater is treated to make it drinkable, but mm, it's not exactly appetizing. How about agua to IPA or shower to suds instead? That's what Desert Monk's Brewing Company in Gilbert, Arizona is doing, brewing a small percentage of their beer from treated wastewater. And it's not the only brewery experimenting with this process. As the Earth's population grows and the pace of human-caused climate change accelerates, treated wastewater will likely become a bigger part of the solution to maintaining life as we know it on this planet. We decided to ask John and Summer Decker, two of Desert Monk's five owners, how they're going about it. Hi, you two. Hello. Hey. Tell us a little bit about Desert Monk's Brewing Company. What's your story?
4: Well, as you indicated through the introduction, there are five of us owners that came together. Four had previous or continue to work together through an engineering firm. And I am married to John or Chris, as we've also been introduced. And so the five of us came together with a love of home brewing and wanted to take that to a professional experience. We have an emphasis on creativity and innovation in what we brew. And that is part of what has led us to embracing this idea of using direct potable water in brewing. How many
0: beers um, have you brewed with this treated wastewater and what do they taste like?
5: So we've done uh, two of the One Water showcases, which is the uh, public outreach that the City of Scottsdale does with this water bringing in a couple of different breweries to brew with the water. So they've had events, and we've done that twice before, uh, before COVID and then last year. And then this year, uh, we have started to use this on a reoccurring basis because of the uh, results that we've had from the first two events.
0: How interesting. So it was sort of more like a pop-up at, at the beginning?
5: Yeah. So the the first time they, uh, the city of Scottsdale kind of reached out looking for brewers that would be interested to, to try and uh, use their water, their direct potable reuse water. So we gave it a shot. Um, we brewed a pale ale uh, the first time. So pretty basic. It turned out really good and really clean. Uh, we were pretty happy with it. And then last year, uh, Scottsdale started using this again once public events kind of started getting going again brewed a, again, an, another pale ale with that. We thought they were both great beers. Uh, we didn't win the competition, so there's local judging with it. So take it for for that, that uh, there's even better beers uh, than what we brewed with this water. But it really kind of got us to the point that we were so impressed with the quality of the water and the beer that we said, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we could brew on a regular basis with this water? Uh, and that kind of started a conversation with the city of Scottsdale the county and the state to be able to get that going and be able to use that water on a recurring basis the most recent beer that we brewed is a lager uh, with this water a little bit sweet a little bit of hops but overall just a fantastic especially summer beer i don't know if you heard about our weather but a little bit hot so a good way to cool off
0: <laughs> yeah and and i understand that it quickly became the brewery's top seller
5: yeah, as soon as we released it, uh, it became our our bestseller right away. whether that's because uh, people were looking for something to cool down or a little bit of the uh, interest in something new, uh, I guess it's TBD, uh, but we have a second beer coming up, half uh, of Eisen Brewed with the same water. Uh, so we'll we'll kind of be able to hopefully deconflict and see if people are just interested for a trial or the quality of the beer overall.
0: So have you found that you have to get customers over the hump of an ick factor, or are
4: they just interested to try? We've had some customers, a few customers, concerned or downright offended by us choosing to use this water for the beers. And to them, we respond, you no, that's okay. We don't brew all of our beers with this. If you don't want to drink a beer made with it, that's okay. We have other beers that you can enjoy and move forward with. By and large, though, the majority of our customers kind of don't care. They're more just interested in the beer being great. And as long as the beer tastes great, they're happy.
0: You've talked about how this beer that you use comes from the city of Scottsdale. Can you explain for our
4: audience how the water's treated and reclaimed before it gets to you? Well, the city of Scottsdale has some really great details on their website that can tell you the details of the scientific information that I am just not going to be able to fully give you. What I can say is this system has been in place since the 1980s and continues to improve and develop. It is state-of-the-art technology using multiple steps of filtration, which includes physical filtration, UV light, treatment to the water, It is tested multiple times throughout the filtration process. Before we can receive the water, it has to be tested twice again immediately before we receive it. So we know the compounds of the water that we're receiving in further detail than the water we would normally receive out of our tap from the town of Gilbert. And we have better indication of the water's tested quality more closely to the time that it goes into our mash.
0: Wow, that's so interesting. Do you prefer the taste of the water that you're getting from Scottsdale to the water that comes out of your tap in Gilbert?
4: So I do. I It is very clean, very, very soft water. It is more like high-end bottled water than the tap water that we otherwise get. The tap water we otherwise get, it's fine, it's clean, it works. We do do a water treatment process to our tap water before we use it for brewing, where we don't have to do anything to the ultra-purified direct potable reuse water that we're picking up for this process. But you're right, it does have a different taste, and it is that ultra-clean canvas that we like to build upon, especially for the lager and then our Hefeweizen uh, as well.
5: It actually comes so clean that depending... On the style of beer that we want to brew, sometimes we actually have to do additions to the water. Some of the traditional beers that you drink from different parts of the world come uh, standard with a different water profile. So we kind of have to, in some cases, try to rebuild that to try and keep the beer style uh, traditional.
0: So interesting. Thank you so much, John and Summer. This has been our pleasure. Thank you. That was John and Summer Decker of Desert Monks Brewing Company, which is brewing beer made with treated wastewater out in Gilbert, Arizona. You know what else requires water? making masa, which makes up most of my diet these days because KCRW and Gustavo's Great Tortilla Tournament is underway, and after weeks of studied tortilla tasting, I, along with my three intrepid co-judges, have whittled down our 64 contenders to the fuerte four. LA Times columnist, KCRW contributor, and tortilla tournament namesake Gustavo Ariano is here with the details and the upsets. Hi.
6: Hola, Evan.
0: So tell us a little about each of the Fuerte Four, the final four contenders, two corn and two flour.
6: Oh my God. So we have history. In your category, you've been praising it, so you got to praise it one more time. Pan Victoria, the first ever Central American tortilla to make it into the Fuerte Four. Then you have my corn tortilla is Taco Maria, former champion, which no longer exists, so that's going to be an incredible matchup. Central American, Yummy versus blue corn tortilla that you can't taste anymore. Yummy. And then flour, you have Heritage Craft Barbecue, famous barbecue. Uh, this one is its Oceanside branch against its neighbor across the street in Oceanside, but more familiar with uh, Angelino's home state. So that's going to be a really, really interesting category. But whoever, corn, flour, they're all amazing. They're all delicious. They're all going to be there October 8th That's Smorgasbord LA.
0: What category do you think is tougher this year, flour or corn?
6: Oh, gosh. Well, corn is more intriguing because... You have a Central American-style tortilla, again, the first time ever in the tournament, made it all the way to the Fuerte Four, and they're delicious, and they just don't get enough respect from non-Central Americans in Southern California, honestly, versus a former champion, Blue Corn, uh, with Taco Maria. And then flour, it's a little bit more conventional, as home states is the only tortilla to ever make it into the SOA every single year. They're amazing, but then to bring in a beef tallow tortilla, I'm going to be interested to see Uh, What you think about a beef tallow tortilla, I've had them before, and by other people, they don't really nail it. This one, though, is absolutely incredible, but home state's incredible as well. So, uh, which is the hardest one? All of them. It's going to be good eats. (laughs) Thank you so much, Gustavo. Gracias.
0: That was Gustavo Ariano, columnist for the Los Angeles Times and KCRW giving us the scoop on KCRW and Gustavo's Great Tortilla Tournament. Join us next weekend on Sunday, October 8th, at Smorgasburg, LA, where we'll crown the ultimate winner. Will it be corn? Will it be flour? Head to our website, kcrw.com slash tortilla to RSVP for the big event. In a minute... The landscape of California is rich and varied, and the native tribes who live across the state have traditionally enjoyed vastly different diets, but one ingredient connects them all. Find out how California acorns have fed generations in one minute right here on Good Food. You're listening to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. Connecting with nature is an approach to cooking that is often overlooked. Not for Sarah Calvosa Olson. A native Californian raised by a Karuk mother, she is leading people on a path to decolonize their diets one cup of flour at a time. As a passionate home cook, she's working to stay connected to her family and roots through food sovereignty.
3: Hi, Sarah. Where did you grow up? Hi, Ayuki. Uh, I grew up on Hoopa lands along the Trinity River in Northern California, either on or very near the Hoopa reservation. Share with us a little bit about your heritage. Well, my mother is Karuk and my father is Italian and of Calabresi, Italian descent, and there's just this collision kind of of traditional foods and that Italian vibe of <laughs> cooking techniques. I love that, that. Come together, yeah. What does Sara mean in Karuk? Sarah means bread in Karuk. Are you well named? <laughs> Yes. I feel, I know that it was not intentional, but I feel that it was really prescient because I have always felt drawn to cooking and to food and to showing my love that way. And I love carbs. So I feel (laughs) like that was really a special naming you you note in the book that many people divide
0: the state of course into two regions northern California and southern California but how do native ingredients change across the state
3: and and when do foodways intersect I mean obviously this is a, our state is very bioregionally diverse and one of the things that I think is really interesting is that as far as all of us together. There are some foods that carry from pretty much every single tribe, our our acorn tribes here in California. But as you move into the mountains, you have different flora and fauna up into the mountains as you would into the coast and in the desert regions as well. But we also had a very robust trading system with each other and there were many, many trading centers throughout California and much of our roadways are built on those trading centers and trading roads. So for example, where I am from um, in the Klamath River Valley, there are many tribes that were in the Klamath River Valley. But So let's talk about the the three main tribes, even the Hupa that are in the middle between the Yurok and the Karuk. So the Karuk are, are upriver people, the Yurok are the downriver people. And so the Yurok and the downriver people that would have, be at the mouth of the Klamath would have different things to eat and trade than the people even just, you know, as the crow flies a few miles up the river where my people are from. And we would trade often with each other to make our diets even more varied and exciting. And in Southern California, they have all different types of flora and fauna down there as well, and different influences from Southwest tribes and in like the Mexico Baja areas as well. So they would have mesquite or chia, even tepary beans from that side, which are an indigenous bean that grow in really dry and rocky outcroppings. So... We have this enormous, nuanced variety of foods all over, just the best foods that you could even imagine in California. When you go to a fancy restaurant, they have things like uh, venison, rabbit, quail eggs, chanterelles, and wild mushrooms, abalone even, and these are all traditional foods for Native peoples. And... To see them on these fancy menus, you know, it, I feel like there should be access like this for everybody. But these were our food, so it made me realize: wow, we really did have this incredible, nuanced, vibrant foodways throughout our communities. So you you
0: talked you you said the word acorns, um, mm-hmm. and and we we can't talk about um, California native culture without talking about the acorn. Can
3: you describe the the taste of acorns? Yeah, the acorn is also has a lot of uh, variable flavor and texture and composition between themselves. So a tan oak acorn is an acorn that's really highly prized by my tribe in particular as the sweetest acorn. And it also is very high in tannins and tannins can be used to cure... Animal hides for clothing and and blankets and stuff. So the the tannins from leaching the acorns can be used for things like that. But there are other acorns that have higher contents of fat or higher contents of starch all throughout California. So they can have different flavors and different uses and applications. So tan oak is something if you're going you can use if you really really want to taste the acorn in this and that really earthy, almost floral sweetness of an acorn, but it requires leaching. So it requires processing. But once you have leached out all of the bitterness from the tannins, you, you're you left with this earthy, floral, sort of sweet, hinting at sweet flavor. But black oak acorns as well, I think are very sweet. White oak acorns are sweet. I really like baking with valley oak acorns. They have a, a more of a deep earthiness a soil minerality that seems to me to go well in breads and savory applications focaccia things like that
0: aside from um using acorn flour another flour that you use is manzanita flour um what is that made from and and How is it used? I know that you have a wonderful story about the um, acorn
3: manzanita
0: waffles.
3: Yes. Acorn manzanita. Well, manzanita is really interesting. It, It grows on the manzanita bush, the little berries, and manzanita means little apple. And they definitely have a nice appley flavor in the berry, but the very, the berry is unique because it isn't a juicy berry. It's a powdery berry and it has very large seeds on the inside. But so it can kind of, it, it can be, it has better application as a flower when you break into the berry and separate it from the seeds. It has better application as a flower because it is a powdery berry and mixing it in as a sweetener for baked goods is, uh, It gives it that little extra kind of sweet apple-y flavor. So let's talk
0: about fall um, in many California native cultures. What is the significance of of the occurrence of this transitional period from summer to colder weather? And what are some of
3: the keystone foods that are available during the season? Well, the fall in the fall period is the Karuk New Year and it is the beginning of the year. So we have a lot of celebrations. There's a return of the salmon in the fall and we do a lot of our traditional dances and ceremonies at this time of year to celebrate and encourage and, and honor the return of the salmon up the river. And at this time, is it's also a time of abundance. Historically, a time of abundance. So the fish would be running, the acorns would be falling, there would be pepper nuts and late summer blackberries and all of the, you know, squashes and things that you can get now that are available at this time of year. So it really is a time of abundance and celebration and gratitude. And it was also historically a time for cultural burning. And I say cultural burning, but it, I really mean, it in a sense of stewardship and not in that it was just ceremonial, but it was, it had a purpose and the term Indian summer comes from all of the native people in California doing this prescribed burning around the state and all the little fires that would be causing smoke to be in the air and the soil moisture at this time is usually great for doing this fire. So doing this prescribed fire.
0: What are some of the small steps that non-Indigenous cooks and eaters can take to decolonize
3: our diets? I think it's always going to be about small steps. And that is really... That's really, I feel like the mindset that everybody should have is, is going into this taking small steps, small but urgent, and starting with one thing and just pick one thing that you see around you in your backyard or one particular native ingredient, native plant, native food, to native to your backyard, to your area. Learn all there is to know about it and how you can use it gather it how is it traditionally prepared are there still people gathering doing subsistence gathering in your area native people how did they traditionally prepare it and use it is it endangered can you grow it yourself taking very small steps very small intentional steps one thing at a time I think is what everybody can do and we do need everybody to engage in this way I think so that's how I I hope people start
0: well, Sarah, I want to thank you. Your book Chimie Nuam is such a gem, um, such a learning opportunity with um, such vibrant food. Thank you. Ah, uh, yo thank you. That was food writer and editor Sarah Calvosa Olson. Her book is Chimie Nuam native california foodways for the contemporary kitchen we've got a recipe for her acorn and manzanita flour waffles on our website that's kcrw.com slash good food Several years ago on a trip to Tokyo, I found myself part of a focus group tasting Japanese baby food. It was the first baby food made with dashi since packaged baby food was brought to Japan by the US after World War II. I found that fascinating and distressing in equal measure. Ever since then, my antennae have been honed to look for baby food stories connected to identity. So I was delighted to come upon Biddy Baby Foods, an indigenous baby food line produced by Zachariah and Mary Ben on the Navajo Nation. Hi, Zach.
2: Hi. Where do you and Mary live? Yeah, we live in... um near uh, the Navajo Nation in Gallup, New Mexico, and our farm is on the Navajo Nation, located in Gadiahe, Cadiai for short, New Mexico, uh, 15 minutes west of Sherbrooke. Did you
0: already have the farm when you decided to create a baby food business?
2: Well, I have been growing all of my life. I've been farming all of my life. Um, so I'm a sixth generation farmer. And so with that, you know, we felt like what can we do to venture on our own? We wanted to be independent, basically. And so that's where we decided that, you know, yes, we did look for some farmland. Um And so unfortunately, on the Navajo Nation, due to some red tape, uh, we were only able to get some farmland through either a reallocation system or having a friend or a family member who has access to farmland. Um, in their name, um, under a agricultural land use permit. And so, my grandma offered up her land and said, you guys can use the land as long as you guys are give some food back to the community.
0: Can you describe the, the products that you make and why you chose them in particular for the babies in your community?
2: So, uh, when we were in our prenatal stage, when we found out we were pregnant, uh, we were starting our farming season. And so, as parents and as providers and as farmers of the land, what can we do to give our son the best, especially, you know, understanding that after we breastfeed him, he's going to be wanting solid foods. And what will that introduction look like? And so we decided that, you know, why don't we as farmers make our own food um, instead of the conventional cash crop that we would, you know, Produce food out of and 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 only celebrate these foods during ceremony, graduations, or momentous times in the lives or events where we gather around as a family. Why don't we have it as an everyday part of our our, our plate? And so we create this special foods called uh, nishjiji, which in translation is Navajo dried steam corn. And so this corn goes through an added value process, and so we work with non-GMO. Heritage types of, of, of farming methods, and so nishiji is produced by uh, cooking uh, and steaming this this corn underground. Uh, we'll have these uh, ten foot deep by four foot wide uh, steam pits in the ground. We'll harvest our, our Navajo Indian white corn anywhere from a truckload to two truckloads at a time is what these steam pits hold, um, and so we'll go out and harvest the corn, put it into the steam pit, cover it up until so it's one of the primitive versions of a uh, modern day pressure cooker on that would be on your countertop. <laughs> so, you know, this is our practice is by using the earth, using the fuel of the earth to be able to, um, cook our food. And so we'll go out and we'll wood haul. We'll bring that wood back. We use anything from pinyon, juniper, pine, oak, cottonwood are the types of woods that we use as a fuel. We build that fire in the pit we'll feed the fire and keep that roaring all day Well, we'll have like a fire chief or somebody to watch over the fire. We'll go out, we'll collect the corn by the charcoal, bring it back at the end of the day, let it burn down to hot pieces of charcoal. Um, And then we'll add in the corn on top of that mud at the rim of the pit as a adhesive plywood mud. There'll be like a little center hole at the center of that plywood. Add in our water. And then you can just hear the roaring of the steam when it makes contact with those charcoals at the bottom of the pit, which is pretty instant. So you just go, like the steam will start coming out of the, the hole. It sort of looks like a, a whale. <laughs> and then we'll add in another piece of plywood, add in weight, whether it be sandbags, soil, um, in the area, rocks, um, stumps. We'll add that on top, but then we let it set and cook for the night. And then we'll open the pit and it's just this a massive amount of steam and heat, and and the smell of the of the corn comes on out. So that food is also a food that you can eat fresh out of the steam pit, and that's called uh, in Navajo, uh That's corn of the earth that's cooked from the earth, and so we'll take that out. We can enjoy it during that time, um, but then that's where it'll go from there, from the steam pit through a dehydration process, and then we'll shell it down. We'll we'll take it to a commercial kitchen, and that's where we will manufacture our products.
0: Zach, can you give me a short description of the product, of, of, of the baby food? Is it milled? How is it reconstituted? How do people use it?
2: Yeah, so Biddy Baby Foods is a milled-down version of the Navajo dried steamed corn. Again, we'll take it to the commercial kitchen, so we'll mill it down, to like a grit, a grit size, a very similar texture to like a cream of wheat. At that point, when we do bag it, it is a dry food. And so this is intentional too, because a lot of our um, people in our community don't have access to running water or electricity. So it has a very long shelf life. And uh, being able to only add boiling water and uh, mixing that with your baby foods and then from there, that's how you create this, like, like a grit style, cream of wheat style uh, cereal. And then that's when you're able to have your own meal from there. You can use you know, half a cup to make a meal for the day uh, for your baby, or you can use the whole thing and puree it with other ingredients, like uh, boiled down carrots, boiled down spinach, boiled down sweet potato, puree that all together, and then you have a meal plan for the week. <laughs>
0: Thank you so much, Zach. What a great story.
2: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: That was Zachariah Ben, along with his wife, Mary. They make baby food from indigenous ingredients. Find it at BiddyBabyFoods.org. That is B-I-D-I-I babyfoods.org. Yesterday marked the beginning of the Jewish Harvest Festival Sukkot. And that means it's Boom times for the citron trade. Our favorite fruit detective shares everything you need to know about this ancient citrus next. I'm Evan Kleiman, and this is Good Food. We've talked to David Carp many times about sour cherries, Gravenstein apples. Decopon mandarins, and crane melons. The last time he was here, the researcher with the Department of Botany and Plant Sciences at UC Riverside told us that the future of California lemons was seedless. Well, he's back, and this time David is here to discuss another type of citrus, one that's far less common, the ancient citron. You're unlikely to see it in stores or even farmers' markets, but this time of year, you might see it used during Sukkot, the Jewish Harvest Festival. This year, Sukkot runs from Friday, September 29th, to Friday, October 6th. Hi, David. Hi, Evan. So let's start off with the basics. What is a citron? What does it look like? And what does it taste like?
7: It's one of the three ancestral species of cultivated citrus fruits from which the others are derived. It's the father of the lemon. It looks like a large, lumpy lemon with thick rind. It tastes, well, it depends what part you're biting into. The primary part of economic use is the very thick rind, the albedo and the flavedo technically.
0: The albedo and the flavedo, so that means the part that's colored, the thin part with the essential oil, and then the white, what, what we call pith.
7: How many people would know that? You've been <laughs> around the block, Evan Kleiman. But generally, it has to be processed, at which point it's candied and turned into that diced candied citron that is used in fruitcake, or to the extent that fruitcake is still made today it's sort of a, a joke although other people that i've talked to have said that fruitcake is so retro that it's hot again
0: yeah but it's also used in panettone
7: and not stolen and various other <laughs> christmas desserts is there a is there a juicy fruit part at the center well yes the flesh the pulp it's i wouldn't say it's juicy it's actually rather dry but you can get a certain amount of juice from it And back in the 16th and 17th century, where citrons were one of the very few forms of citrus that were really grown to any extent in the Mediterranean, um, the Italians used juice made from citron called aqua cedrata. And I think it's still around today, although it's not as common as it used to be.
0: Yeah, it was like a digestive, I think.
7: I think so. Anyway, that's one use of citron is culinary use. Then there's used for Jewish ritual purposes, for which there are maybe a dozen or so varieties that are known as etrog. Etrog is really just the Hebrew and uh, Yiddish word for citron, but really etrog more properly refers to those forms that traditionally are used for Jewish ritual purposes.
0: And why? How did the Jews kind of adopt the citron for this purpose during Sukkot, and how is it used?
7: It was a fruit that was grown in Persian royal gardens in the sixth and fifth century BC. And it was highly aromatic. It stayed on the tree for a very long time. It was exquisite aroma and appearance and it was very, quite exotic at the time. So they thought of it as the fruit of the goodly tree in Leviticus, the Jewish Bible. Um, and ye shall render unto the Lord the fruit of a goodly tree. It's never been completely clear exactly when it was decided that the fruit of the goodly tree was exclusively referred to the citron. But certainly by the second or, th- or first century BC, it was being used for that purpose.
0: I've always thought that the uses of especially aromatic food items in religious ritual have a lot to do with this sense of the aroma wafting up into regions of spirituality, let's say. It is.
7: It was a symbol in Jewish halakhic thought of purity of heart. And for that reason, observant Jews, and particularly ultra-Orthodox Jews, are famously willing to pay a lot of money. It's crazy. There are many strictures on the appearance of the citron in terms of its bitam, its persistent style, whether it's there or not. The size, the shape, the color, a typical high-quality citron will cost maybe $100 to $150 um, here in the United States. And I've heard of specimens going, I've seen a specimen that went for $2,000, and that was 10 years ago. God knows what it would cost these days. But before you quit your day job, Evan Kleiman, just understand it's not that easy to come up with a citron that's cosmetically perfect in that fashion
0: I would imagine. And for a fruit that is incredibly bumpy, what does cosmetically perfect mean anyway? That's rhetorical, David, rhetorical.
7: No, that means there are no spots on it. There are no insect bites. There are no punctures, that it's shapely. There are long books written about the Holacic requirements for a citron and what it takes to make a truly beautiful citron.
0: I understand that you have a really personal connection to the citron, and in fact, it's the reason why you shifted from being a journalist to becoming a scientist who focuses on fruit.
7: Yeah, I was writing, I came out here after five years writing for the New York Times. Uh, um Lori O'Shoa, bless her, brought me out here to write a, a weekly column for the LA Times. And I thought of doing an article on citron since I was doing a, a whole series of articles on the fruits of California. So I went up to visit John Kirkpatrick, who's the only real grower of citron uh, for Jewish ritual purposes in the United States. But before I wrote my article, the Wall Street Journal beat me to it. Drat, I thought. But I thought, let's just wait a few years. And then I became more and more involved researching it. And I really went overboard. 25 years later, the book finally came out. You see, you couldn't just look up most of these things to find out, like, the history of the citron in the United States or in Corsica. You couldn't just Google it somewhere. I had to go myself, and I went around the world to China, to Brazil, all over the Mediterranean, to Morocco, to Calabria, to Corsica, to Israel, to Puerto Rico, which was the world's largest producer for in the second half of the 20th century of, of citron. Anyway, the book finally came out. It only took 25 years to put it together. I'm the largest single author of four chapters.
0: Well, you are a famous obsessive. And so did you have to move on to a different fruit? Did you go alphabetically? Did you just decide to focus on what the markets are, what farmers are bringing in seasonally for your
7: research? I went out to the University of California Riverside Citrus Variety Collection, as it was then called. 20 years ago or so, and I started taking photos of the Citrons they had in the collection. They've got like a a two dozen or so, Citron and Citron hybrid. And somehow I slid down that slippery slope. And after 20 years, I'd taken a quarter million photos, two duty cycles for high-end Nikon cameras, which now appears on the Citrus Variety Collection website of all 1,200 varieties that they've got in the collection, because it was a paradise, A Partis, as Jews would say, I mean, wouldn't you, if you had the opportunity to taste 1,200 kinds of citrus? That got me started, and I became involved going to scientific conferences, so I would really know what I was talking about in citron and citrus. The next thing I knew, I was a pomologist supervising a team of 55 leading scientists around the world for the Register of New Fruit and Nut Cultivars.
0: Amazing, David. Your story is so unbelievable. Um. I understand that the citron also has ritual uses in both Buddhism and Hinduism.
7: Hinduism, I'm not sure about that, but certainly um, the the Buddha's hand citron, which is, is absolutely beautiful and startling. It looks like a cross between a giant squid and a lemon, so it's got these digits, the fingers. Every fruit on a Buddha's hand tree is like this. It used to be thought that there was only just one variety. But from the time I spent in China, I realized and collected a dozen or so morphologically different varieties. So there's a whole world of those that are used to perfume the room. They're thought of as the Buddha's hand. And there are millions of pieces of jade that were carved over the years illustrating exactly that.
0: Wow. So if we, after all this citrus talk, there are going to be people out there who are going to want to get their hands on a citron. Is there any place regular consumers can
7: even buy them? You're talking about a fruit or a tree? A fruit. Oh, sure. You can find them at the Santa Monica Farmer's Market. There are people that offer them, certainly Buddha's Hands, Citron, Murray Family Farms, for example— sells them at a pretty price, but yes, you can get, there are half a dozen different growers at the Wednesday Santa Monica Farmer's Market. The common citron, like the Diamante, um, is unbelievably, even though um, David Fairchild, the founder of the USDA's Plant and Seed Introduction Service, made his reputation 130 years ago, bringing in with great intrigue the prized Corsican citron, the prized citron of commerce that was the pot of gold of the 1890s. Nobody even cares to grow the best variety anymore. They just mostly offer culinary-grade Etrog citrons. Whew! we got to do something about that, (laughs) and I know exactly the person to talk to about it. He's coming with me to India. Georgios, let's get on the case. You've thrown down the gauntlet. Yes, we need to be growing the best citron, culinary citron in the world, as prepared in Corsica and in Calabria.
0: It is always so fascinating to talk to you, David. Thank you so much.
7: It's a, always such a pleasure. It's great to see you in person, too. I love it. <laughs> yeah,
0: we're actually in the studio. That was the researcher with the Department of Botany and Plant Sciences at UC Riverside, David Karp discussing the citron if you want more details on this ancient fruit we recommend the recent book the citron compendium it includes four of carp's essays on the fruit you'll find a link to the book on our website kcrw.com slash good food if you missed any of today's show listen at kcrw.com goodfood or on kcrw's mobile app you can also subscribe on apple podcasts stitcher or spotify As always, my thanks go out to the Good Food team. They are Jillian Ferguson, Laryl Garcia, and Alina Shatkin. And to our engineers, Desmond Taylor, Nick Lamponi, and Hope Brush. And a special thanks to Laura Kondarajan and Gary Masiha. I'm Evan Kleiman. Happy Sukkot to all who celebrate. Have a pastry in your sukkah for me. I'll be back next week with an all-new episode of Good Food.